Hi everyone. Good evening. Thank you for joining this broadcast today live, uh, and thank you everyone from the IMK Alumni Association for doing all the hard work uh, in putting this together. Uh, my name is Hiren Dasani. I am a alumni of uh, class of 2001 from IIM Kozhikode, and uh, have been working with Goldman Sachs Asset Management for last 13 plus years now. Uh, it gives me great pleasure to introduce today. Uh, our beloved professor Uday Damodaran, who I'm sure all of you are waiting for, waiting to hear more from. Uh, and when I was going through his biodata and his, uh, you know, uh, his his uh, his profile, I was wondering how to introduce such a versatile personality. Uh, how do you how do you introduce someone who is uh, uh, who is a who is a BSc physics, who is a master's in statistics, who is a fellow from IIM Bangalore with 30 plus years of teaching experience, uh, and who is also on top of that, a very sports enthusiast, an avid photographer, uh, a wide, widely traveled person, and on, on, on top of all of that, one of the most amazing human beings, which all of us know him as. So uh, it's my absolute pleasure again to introduce Dr. Damodaran and uh, uh, please welcome Professor Damodaran on, on stage. Thank you, Hiren. Thank you. Uh, besides introducing me, uh, I'm sure that most of them will actually be wanting to listen to you. When I put up that Facebook post, uh, felt very proud putting your designation. It's pretty long too. So I feel very good putting up your profile there. Thanks, Hiri. Thank you so much. Thank you for your time, sir. And uh, uh, let's let's have some fun today. Uh, so, uh, Professor, I mean, if I remember correctly, you used to teach us uh, back in 2001 uh, securities analysis and portfolio management course in, in, in IIM Code. And I understand that you also taught some of the other financial management related courses at, at IMK and uh, obviously you've been teaching these courses for a long period of time. So maybe just as a starter, I just wanted to know, you know, how have you seen the evolution of the curriculum at the business schools over a period of time in your 30 years plus of teaching experience? Um, if you look at it, that's from the finance uh, courses, isn't it? Um, yeah. Yeah, like you say, it's been a long while. I've been around for a long while. So it really depends on where I keep the marker as, how far back I go. But if I were to go back to your times, for example, uh, early 2000, I don't know. I don't know whether at that time courses like valuation, whether they were popular, but then it really took off. It means after the early 2000 and then today you can't have a business school not offering a course on valuation, they might call it business valuation, corporate valuation. So that's that. That's one big change. And then obviously this whole thing of technology coming in. So I think uh, courses which didn't exist uh, earlier, FinTech, then uh, financial analytics, and things like financial time series, that bunch of courses. And then um, also courses uh, like uh, modeling, financial modeling using Excel, using R, uh, Python. So there's been a, a sort of a shift towards technology computing side quite a bit. We've also uh, experimented with 
uh, offering courses like uh, on compliance, but students are normally not interested in those courses. So quite a few institutes, we have tried courses like uh, compliance, uh, they're not interested. The old favorites are still there, uh, mergers and acquisition, security analysis, and so on. I personally uh, flirted with uh, behavioral finance. I offered that as an elective after I moved from and Code when I went to XLRI, I offered this course on uh, behavioral finance. But I, uh, but when you ask about this whole curriculum, one thing which stands out is that we don't have too many um, courses even now on the corporate finance side. You know, that a brick and mortar, working capital, cash management, crucial things like financing. Surprisingly, surprisingly, it's not very popular across uh, these schools. At least in India, and, and do you do you find there is greater kind of interaction with the industry today than what it was in the past in terms of designing the course and the curriculum and all? Yeah, there's far greater interaction, far greater interaction in deciding the course in terms of small projects, in terms of help in setting up uh, labs. So there's much more interaction than uh, than it used to be earlier, far more. Yeah, I was just checking with our batchmates that what is the memory which you have, the most vivid memory of the securities analysis and portfolio management course, which we took almost back 20 years now. And somebody just pointed out that you used to have this paper cuts for explaining the yield curves. I don't know whether you still do that or not. Maybe you are far more technologically yeah. savvy now. Uh, yeah, that time you even, <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, just, just, uh, just a... Uh, I mean, more on a serious note, uh, SAPM, are you still taking that course? And like, how have you modified some of the content just going by the nostalgia, going on the nostalgia lane a little bit? Yeah, SAPM, uh, actually, coincidentally, uh, this year at IIM Udaipur, I took it after quite a long break. I hadn't been taking the course for some years. And um, yeah, uh, now that you ask, when I was preparing, coincidentally, when I was preparing the course online this time, honestly, I didn't change it much. Okay, that is, I didn't change the course outline and the contents much. Uh, shouldn't be. That's the danger of coming on an interview like that and publicly so <laughs> confessing it. But then uh, I don't remember. I, obviously, you guys wouldn't remember. But there was this bit of uh, intro to the course that I used to put. I didn't change it at all. I just sort of copied and pasted it. Uh, not laziness, but I'd spent a lot of time preparing that uh, build up to the course outline. Uh, there was a stuff that I'd written about how uh, investing requires not only skill, but discipline and a modicum of luck. And that was taken from this textbook. I don't know whether I used that for your batch too. There's this textbook by Bodhi, Kane, Marcus, and now Mohanty. So that textbook uh, starts off by saying that, hey, if you want, if you think that by reading a book and you can make riches in the markets, sorry, you can't do that. It requires skill, discipline, and a modicum of luck. So in that sense, um, the course outline, not really. Uh, Content-wise, uh, even this time that I offered it, I didn't change it much. But the, the pedagogy, especially for a course like this, this year, when I offered it at IIM Udaipur, is changed completely thanks to technology. So I'm able to bring the markets, bring the world into every class. And in that sense, it's much more fun 
teaching the course. I guess for anyone, for anyone, if you were to try and teach the course now, it's it's really fun teaching the course because, for example, something like uh, uh, last year when I was teaching the course, HUL had um, reduced prices of uh, of some of their products. So when I went to class and I asked them, hey guys, did you read this? They said, yeah. Then I said, what's happened to the market cap? What do you think the impact will be? I first asked them, what do you think the impact will be? They gave some figures. I said, check up. They checked up. And then I said, did it, does it tally with your what you said? And then you tell them, okay, remove the market effect. Now look at the market. How did the market move? Why? How much? How much of the beta? So they look at the beta. And then they go and look at, I said, go and look at analyst reports. Uh, go and look at Milk or Water or Morningstar. Uh, look at the look at the order book. See the action on the order book. What's happening there? So you can bring the bring the world into the class now. Uh, so every class we used to really uh, bring the world into the class. So in that sense, uh, the content hasn't uh, at least my course. I haven't changed it uh, dramatically, but uh, the like you said, instead of giving those newspaper articles uh, photocopied, now just go to the website, search, look at who's holding stock, and look at the investor. What else is the investor holding? Uh, have there been movements? So that was much uh, livelier. That sounds much more like what we do in the real life uh, uh, away from the academics and probably some truth, as they say, are universal truths. So you don't need to change them just for the sake of changing them. And I guess the yeah. SAPM course probably fits into that. Uh, one of the memory which I have obviously of that course and which if I think back of my career kind of also really attracted me to the, you know, financial analysis, this, the, the investing world was this whole portfolio theory approach, the, mm -hmm. the Markowitz portfolio theory. And mm -hmm. how do you construct the efficient portfolio? Uh, you know, how do you maximize the returns while minimize the risk and the whole concept of the portfolio construction, right? Mm -hmm. And, I, I'm just wondering, being a practitioner of uh, portfolio construction in the real life, uh, I, I find it quite useful, but are you also still a big believer of that? And do you think that in today's world also it's as relevant as it was ever before? Yeah, yeah I can imagine a few guys sniggering and laughing because most students know of my love for Markowitz and uh, Miller Modigliani. Um, it, it is relevant, but now I wonder whether I'd be insulting the intelligence of the audience by taking it from the basics, but maybe, yes, let me try and do that. Actually, if you look at uh, Markowitz, in the whole history of rational thought, it's a landmark. It's like landmark article, 1952. Because um, when you look at uh, an investor's buying decision or a consumer buying a product, we have to model two things. We have to model the consumer or the investor on one side, and we have to model the product or the asset in finance on the other side. So classical economics spent a lot of time because that was decision-making under certainty, so hundreds of years back. Their focus was on modeling the uh, consumer. But by the time uh, financial economics came into being, we had to model not only the consumer, but the asset and the big difference, therefore, between a consumption good and the and a financial asset 
is the uncertainty. In a consumption good, there's no uncertainty. It's a choice between oranges and apples. But when you're buying an asset, it's looking at this whole stream of uncertain cash flows. And therefore, when uh, in Markowitz's time, 1952, with the lack of computing power, uh, you had to be parsimonious, miserly in modeling the whole thing. And therefore, to model the investor and to model the asset, uh, you had to be miserly. So therefore, one thing was to look at the investor and say, let's use technically, we talk about a quadratic utility function. So you're confining it to two degrees. And or uh, you can model the asset using a normal distribution, which means, again, you're confining it to the mean and the variance. Now, with the quadratic utility function, there were some technical, there are some technical problems. And therefore, Markowitz had to assume the normal distribution. But given that, uh, given that his 1952 paper, when he lays down those uh, sort of uh, assumptions or constraints, the, the output, like you say, I'm so happy that you still remember and are a fan of it. The output was stunning for any student in finance. Uh, should the hair stands up when you tell a student both numerically and analytically that, look, if you take two risky securities and combine it, given certain conditions, you can create a risk-free asset. Okay, so what, numerically and analytically, you show that. Uh, that makes your hair stand, or at least or I think it should make the hair stand because it's a it's a it's a it's a stunning result. And the the big big uh, takeaway, the big uh, thing that he actually gave the world is the focus on the core movement, the core variance, and that that I think is increasingly relevant in today's world, which is so connected. A large chunk of the risk comes from not only the standalone risk but the risk of things moving together. Obviously, he realized the limitations of that. And in, the, in his 1959 book and in his papers in, I think, 91 and 93, he talked about not looking at variance as a measure of risk because variance is looking at dispersions from the mean, both on the positive side and negative side. And therefore, in theory, unfortunately, in an MBA textbook classroom, we don't bring those things. But then he talked about using the semi-variance, downside risk measures, and so on. So if you take on all of that, it's really, really relevant today. Though risk uh, measurements and risk management today have moved on from analytical methods and due to computing power, as you know, there's far more number crunching, um, numeric-oriented risk management uh, sort of scenarios. Yeah, I mean, if I think of it, in terms of the practical implementation and one of the one of the conditions which markovitz thought was that markets are efficient and everybody has the same access to all the information right those were some of the kind of you know underlying concepts or underlying requirements of of the theory and if you take that to another extreme then you can say that why pay to active managers like ourselves and i may be doing disservice to my own job here but then you can effectively just run everything with the passive money uh, but then we do have you know markets like india where the active portfolio management still generates decent outperformance over a period of time so i mean how do we kind of reconcile uh, going back to the you know uh, going back to that yeah, uh, uh, 
actually, if you look at his uh, his, uh, his sort of uh, seminal paper, the 1952 paper, I think maybe in the first sentence or the second sentence, he starts off by saying there are two stages to portfolio selection. The first stage is forming judgments, beliefs about the stocks that you're going to invest in. The second stage is takes those beliefs and judgments as input. And that is a more scientific procedure of portfolio optimization. And therefore, he starts out by saying, I'm going to focus on the second portion. And that is I'm assuming that the inputs are given. And then how do you go around mathematically, sort of objectively arriving at an uh, optimal portfolio? But then towards the end of the article, again, he goes on to say, now the judgments, the, the beliefs and the judgments of the stocks are very subjective. So in that sense, uh, Markowitz himself gave the space to say that there could be, there is scope for active management. But later on, pharma and people like that came on and said that, hey, uh, markets are efficient. Everyone have the, has the same info and therefore active management might not have a role to play. But then, um, but then uh, like most things in life, I believe that there has to be a balance. Uh, that is, a market cannot be efficient unless there are active investors. So passive investors are actually piggyback riding on the work being done by active investors. And therefore, in that sense, um, in that sense, in a societal welfare sort of uh, Thing if you look at active investors are performing a crucial economic role. They are the ones when we introduce uh, corporate finance, we say what markets do is that uh, they take funds from the supply side yeah. and find the channelized resources. Now, if you don't have active investors, the, the investors' money doesn't get channelized to the best use. So therefore, active investors have, a, I think, a big role to play. Of course, in, a, in another sense, in 1991, Sharp, William Sharp, the other great uh, name in finance, he had come up with a paper called The Arithmetic of Active Investing, which simply said this, saying that there is a market, there are passive investors, there are active investors. The market's return is just a weighted average of the passive investors' returns and active investors' returns. Now, passive investors, by definition, will have almost the same return as Active in uh, the market. Market return. And therefore, the corollary is that active investors also, their portfolio on an average will have the same returns as the market, but active investors spend more money, uh, their expenses are higher, and therefore their net returns are lesser. And therefore, his argument was that look, active investing doesn't pay off. Those are, yeah. those are very uh, uh, compelling argument. I guess. Uh, uh, philosophically, I would say that it, though passive investors and active investors might have the same average return, passive investors' returns will be closer together. They won't be dispersion. Active investors' returns will be dispersed. So there might be one guy who's losing a hell of a lot of money, another guy who's making a hell of a lot of money. And that's what I think inspires or sort of motivates everyone to the, the romance of investing the glamour of investing is active. It's actually like uh, when I work in sports, 
uh, there's this uh, book called The Winner Take All Society uh, by Cook and Thomas, I think it was. The Winner Take All Society. They say sports is such a sports and entertainment is such a cruel uh, profession that if very few people make good money, most of them give their life trying to beat a record, trying to reach that uh, stage of an IPL or India cricket team. And yet, though we know that on the whole, it is not a good thing to try and make a living out of sports or entertainment. You have hundreds of thousands of people who try to do that. And if I think that is the allure of uh, active investing, so therefore, I guess it yeah, always... I mean, to, to, me, to me, it seems that this passive investing at, at its extreme is a sense of fatalism. I mean, you can, you can exactly. just say that yeah. I can't do anything in life, so let me just go with whatever is the... Uh, average in the life and, and 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 then you just want to be average in the life so there is no aspiration philosophically uh -huh. in the passive and of course like sapm won't have a role <laughs> <laughs> you might yeah. as well throw darts on the uh, board and pick yeah. up whichever stock you want to yeah you, you you brought a nice point about sports and i know that you have done a hell of hell lot of work on the uh, analyzing data on the sports side. Some of the more interesting work, which I'm sure many of our audience would love to hear about, is the uh, analyzing the betting averages and analyzing some of the other parameters of Indian cricket team and all. Maybe if you can just spend a couple of moments on, uh, you know, what exactly was the scope of your work. And uh, I, I know you have done several projects, but if you would want to just pick one or two of them. Yeah, uh, actually, many of this started in I am Cory Code. I think it was uh, when I was in I am Cory Code, that was, would have been 2004, I think. Uh, it actually started when I was watching, a, getting ready to watch a cricket match live. And Sidhu was a commentator. And he came up with one of his classic Sidhuisms. He said that the Indian cricket team is like the bicycle stand at Patiala Talkies. He says oh. that if one, if one falls, all the cycles fall. And then I thought, hey, uh, he's talking about correlation. He's, he's talking about Markovic's core idea of covariance. And then I said that, is, is this really true? Uh, are, uh, are the Indian batsmen's performances much more correlated than, let's say, the Kiwi team, the New Zealand team? And that's what set me off. That is, I thought that, let me look at this and started looking at the data. But then I realized that there's a problem with the data. There's all these not outs that we have in cricket. So you have to fix it uh, somehow. And uh, But then uh, again, uh, taking from portfolio theory, like we say that a stock or a stock or a portfolio cannot be characterized by its average return. We say we have to look at risk, the second dimension. But in cricket, uh, we talk only about the average. Uh, for example, for a batsman, bowler's data is more messy working with, and therefore I haven't really strayed much into it. But batting data is much easier to work with, and if I thought, oh, uh, why not look at a second measure to uh, explain or describe a batsman's performance? And look at the average and look at the dispersion or risk. And uh, then I had a problem because the other's not out problem. So I tried fixing that and came out with a two-dimensional plot of all uh, uh, batsmen. So you now have two dimensions. One is the average, the other is the consistency. And then whenever you do a model, you always look at 
whether the results make sense. And then the results looked good because Dravid, Dravid in my results was the most consistent and we used to call him the wall. So that's, that's uh, what I did. And I've also used, uh, like uh, I said, in Markowitz's extended work, we talk about many measures of downside risk. For example, like the beta, we talk about the downside beta. When the market goes down, how much does your portfolio go by, down by? And therefore, then, then I thought, hey, this is interesting. That is, when a batsman, when we talk about Lakshman or Tendulkar those days when I was looking at the data, uh, when the team performs well, which players perform well? That's the upside beta. But as a coach or a selector, you might find a player who's valuable if that player's downside beta is negative. That is, when the team go, does poorly, the players should stand up. Yeah. And therefore, I, if I tried creating a, a model based on downside beta, that is, so that means you have to measure team performance, you have to measure uh, batsman performance. But it's a fascinating field, uh, the whole area of sports, big, big, uh, huge amounts of data. So it's a, it's a lot of uh, some of the cutting edge uh, work now is being done in sports. Sports was not a preferred field for academicians, but given the huge amount of data that we have now, some of the most cutting edge uh, methodologies of data analysis are now being applied to sports. A Bayesian regression, quadratic assignment procedures. Yes. And therefore, some of these papers now will beat many papers in financial economics. So we are getting really good uh, papers out of sports now. Just for the fun's sake, if you were to do that analysis on the current Indian team, who has the most upside beta, you think, and who has the most downside beta? <laughs> I don't know. Honestly, honestly, that's another thing uh, that uh, I feel. I keep feeling that I'm an imposter. That whatever I've done, I'm not complete. I'm not perfect. For example, uh, finance. Uh, my colleagues here at IIM Udaipur, some of them are tremendous researchers, young guys, really good. Uh, I'm not really there. And sports, I get amazed with uh, some of my colleagues who are so up there uh, in terms of uh, current statistics, uh, uh, sort of things at the, the tip of their hands. But this team, I've not been following, really. <laughs> Interesting. Uh, just, you know, if I think of all these aspects which we discussed so far, I think one one central theme among all of that is the idea of uncertainty. And I, I, I think you've always been fascinated with that idea of uncertainty, whether it is in the area of finance or whether it is in the area of, you know, analyzing sports related data. Uh, so I, I'm just wondering, like, first of all, is that a correct way of thinking about it uh, or and, and and if it is, then you know, how do you kind of you know make sense of that uncertainty? Yeah, uh, for example, for in the case of cricket, moving to sports, it was uh, the connect the common point. Uh, the thing which helped me transition was that whole thing of uh, trying to look at co movement, uh, looking at the cricket team uh, like a portfolio, and therefore uh, the big big. Uh, common thing was uh, was uh, uncertainty. And then, uh, yeah, if you look at life in general, it's, it's something that uh, fascinates me. Um, 
I've also been uh, taking risks. I was a, I'm a failed entrepreneur. I started a bookstore in Goa, closed that down. And um, even uh, students who uh, have later on taken my courses in derivative, financial derivatives, etc., know that I'm a huge fan, not only of uh, analytical uh, methods of modeling uncertainty, but numerical methods like Monte Carlo simulation. Uh, and therefore, one of the things that I tend to do is, I put it up on a Facebook post some days back. So I, I keep running simulations in my mind, whether it's about life or I just keep looking at the various, various uh, uh, possibilities there are. Uh, so for example, when I undertook that uh, garlanding India, went around the country, there are hundreds of possibilities that can happen. So I tend to run those possibilities through, prepare yourself for the worst, because there are possibilities which are very bad. Prepare yourself for the worst, but hope for the best. And that, I guess, is what adventure is. If you venture out and hope for the best, it's adventure. And if you don't calculate and uh, prepare for the worst, it can become a misadventure. And therefore, it's uh, th th that thing is, uh, now that you say it, I, that's the, something that I keep running through my mind. And I guess it came from my childhood because when I was born and when I was tiny, I grew up uh, hearing around that my mom used to say, oh, uh, you got a bad horoscope. <laughs> we call it jatagam. That is, you are unlucky and you bring bad luck for others. So you're worried. Oh, you're not only unlucky, but you're going to bring bad luck for others. So you run these simulations in your head. And that's what you constantly do, whether it be derivatives or portfolios or life. You're running simulations through your head. And be prepared for the worst, but hope for the best. Very interesting. I, I want to touch base upon two adventures in different parts of your life. You mentioned briefly about that bookstore. I mean, I was not sure, I was not aware of it since you kind of mentioned it today. Uh, how did that come about? And and you know, uh, what, what that also what was I coincidentally the... uh, that also coincidentally happened uh, when I was at I'm Cody Code, a friend of mine from I'm Bangalore. Uh, I had done my PhD, he had done his MBA, he was junior to me. He was starting a bookstore and then I bookstore chain, which went on to become the largest bookstore chain in India. And then I said, hey, that's my dream. That's what I wanted to do. So he said, you join me then. And what I did is I took up this uh, franchise of the bookstore in Goa. Uh, you wouldn't have heard of it because it happened, uh, it existed for a very short while. We had to wind up the bookstore chain, not for commercial reasons, but for personal reasons of his. So I shut down the bookstore. He kept feeling bad for me, saying that, hey, I pulled you into this mess. And I told him, don't worry. I said, I'm milking it dry. I'm getting my returns on it because I keep using that in my corporate finance class uh, to teach value drivers. Because when you look at return on equity, we say return on equity is net profit margin into asset turnover into leverage. And I keep asking students that, look, which of these ratios is important? And use my bookstore to say that in a bookstore, you don't have control over margins. And therefore, the big thing is asset turnover. And that framework I keep using to teach. Uh, so therefore, that uh, that is uh, sort of yielded result for me. I use a, a bookstore example quite a bit in class. Uh, and then um, the Garlanding India thing was fun. It was, uh, thank God, uh, more than uh, skill. I uh, sort of, uh, I was lucky. 
So I keep saying that I was lucky that I did it without any mishap. That was the one trip or you did kind of more than one trip. So one trip I do remember back in 2014, 16,000 kilometer, you had your Renault Duster car. And ah. I still remember some of those photographs quite vividly, which you used to post on Facebook. But uh, yeah. what was the most fun part of it, probably? Um, actually, it was 60 days. I think every day was fun. <laughs> every single day was fun. Every day was good. Every day I lived it. But there were there were a whole lot of things. There were those scary bits of uh, driving through the Zojila Pass. Um, uh, bits where I got lost, number of times that I got lost. I didn't have a smartphone. I didn't have things to navigate. I don't know Hindi as a language, uh, so I can't speak, converse too well. I used to get lost in North India quite often. Uh, so all that was fun. And then uh, there was an IM Kori called Alam uh, who joined me. at. It was a hop-on, hop-off model. People could join me wherever they wanted and get off. There was an IMK Alam of 2005 batch. Harsh Biani, who was my companion for 15 days. So that was a fun part <laughs> where we went through Jammu Kashmir, Leh Ladakh. That was fascinating. It was challenging and fascinating because I'm not a good driver. Nor can I even fix the uh, tire. I can't change the tire of the car. So it was scary, but it was fun. Very interesting. Uh... I, I remember you were also doing it for raising some funds, right? If I'm not wrong, was it for some of the NGOs which you wanted to support? And again, yeah. it was something to yeah. do with sports, connecting your two passions of traveling. and uh, The first one, I collected funds for some 22 NGOs. Those were general NGOs. Then, uh, okay, you asked about the second edition. The second time around, I didn't drive, but I made some alum of XLRI, alum of GIM, etc. too ride their motorcycles. And that time we used it to raise funds for some sports academies, like Mary Combs uh, Boxing Academy, uh, P.T. Usha's Academy, uh, Yogeshwar Dutt's Academy. So we raised funds for some sporting academies. But otherwise, uh, yeah, I also tied that. So it was a complex sort of a design, a uh, number of things tied in various layers. Um, so, and I used to stay, I used to get hosted by strangers. So a number of, uh, Every day was spent in some stranger's house, not in a hotel. So it had many layers to it, and it was fun. Every single day was fun. Yeah, very, very interesting. And maybe one last thing from me before we can probably open it up for the audience uh, for, for the questions. Uh, when, when we were preparing for this and when I spoke to you, you also mentioned that you have this eventual dream in your mind of doing something on the homestay side of it. And that sounds very another another fascinating personality. I mean, fascinating <laughs> side of the personality. So what is kind of making you think on, on those lines? And what is the idea compared to, let's say, normal homestay, which you want to do? Yeah, the, yeah but the COVID has put a spanner in the works. Uh, we were actually thinking of quitting uh, academics, quitting... Uh, a regular job and setting up a homestay somewhere in the country, uh, working, uh, set it up very close to a disadvantaged community and get people who stay with us to also work with that disadvantaged community. Actually inspired a little bit by a elective called the Business of Humanity that uh, Suma, my wife and I, 
uh, were planning to offer along with a professor from the University of Pittsburgh, who's uh, pretty uh, renowned. And he's got this whole course that he offers at his university called Business of Humanity, which is about, which is about uh, addressing the needs of humankind in a humane manner. And therefore, he calls it the business of humanity. And he says that if you do that, you'll be addressing the needs of society and you'll be making returns. So it's flipping Adam Smith's invisible hand on its head. So there we used to say that, think of making money for yourself, be selfish, and it'll do good for others. Now we are flipping it and saying, think of doing good for others and you'll create a sustainable enterprise. And uh, therefore we had think ideas of setting up this homestead. We thought of doing it, thought of doing it in Rajasthan. We still haven't decided. Then we went back to Kerala, fell in love with uh, uh, some places there, and looked at that. And we still haven't decided, but that's uh, there, hot on the this thing. We we have to do it sometime. Yeah, I guess the whole concept of the ESG investing is kind of based upon that, right? That. Yeah, you yeah, do yeah. you 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 make money, but at the same time you do good for the society and yeah. and, and, and that just uh, you know winding up uh, a little bit. But I do remember that few years back there was also a alumni event or something which you attended with some of our I am alumni Mumbai. Uh, I think it was an event at Bombay Canteen or something, and many of the yeah, alumni yeah, yeah. remember it very fondly. So just. If you want to share something about that, uh, that was uh, when was it? that was last year, just last year, uh, I think last uh, February, two thousand nineteen February, when I was in Mumbai for some work, uh, Suma and me, uh, Ronald of the two thousand five batch and Harish and a few of them said that I don't know whether you know the Bombay Canteen. It's a lovely uh, restaurant. Yeah, I've been there once. I didn't know that it was owned by an IMK alumni. Uh, I was for some discount there. So. <laughs> and uh, because uh, we, another dream of mine was to set up a restaurant. I'd written a case study on a restaurant. Then I got in touch in, uh, with Samir, who owns a uh, Bombay canteen, told him that I'll write a case study on you. And then we had this beautiful get together. I think uh, how many? There were about 20, uh, 25 alum at Bombay canteen. And Samir had curated a, curated a menu for that get together. I still have it at home. The printed menu that I keep showing people. He had curated a menu for the get together, which are themes from uh, backwaters from I am Cody Code. The cocktails were all named after uh, all those hotels, Beach Hotel. And uh, so, therefore, everything was sort of with the I am Cody Code uh, theme. And superb. Uh, it's a fine dining restaurant, superb setting. So, we had a great time. Uh, that is, I think, almost the only. IMK Alam meet that I've attended since leaving IMK Code, but it's just a lovely get together. Thank you so much, Professor Damodaran, for your time. And uh, let's see, probably we can take some questions from the audience. Uh, uh, yeah, so I think there is one question which is coming, uh, and this is specific on one of the hot topics nowadays, which is geo the mm -hmm. Reliance Geo and, mm -hmm. and the participant wants to understand in terms of, uh, you know, why the while the market is cheering the deleveraging of Reliance by selling a stake and raising equity, uh, 
let me just try to read this correctly uh, is it justified only if the valuation of geo by the stake divestiture was expected uh, so I, I i think the, the question is that just by deleveraging can you just raise the value of the underlying asset probably to some to, to in, in, the, in that form okay uh, yeah so ravi should know better <laughs> like i said i really don't uh, uh, people get zapped by that i really don't uh, follow stocks uh, closely or valuations but ravi i guess what ravi is saying is that it makes sense from uh, uh, a, a reliance's side if they are getting a value which is greater than what they expected and if he feels that it is not and he says that capital structure shouldn't matter no ravi in that sense capital structure again remember milan modigani that is capital structure doesn't matter under a number of assumptions but milan modigani got the nobel because as you peel off those assumptions as you keep peeling off those assumptions you get a, an insight into what uh, that capital structure does matter and capital structure is very very important it's really important in fact i'm surprised nowadays when i see a lot of young startups leveraging themselves okay so therefore they could there are both uh, negatives and positives obviously of everything we talk about the trade off uh, theory etc so therefore the capital structure does matter i didn't see your question went off or i didn't see what you said about debt or equity but capital structure does matter valuation shouldn't matter as capital structure ought to be no capital structure does matter ravi uh, capital structure does matter because uh, uh, debt and equity in fact i think a problem with uh, many startups for sorry for deviating from your question but a problem with uh, many startups today is that i think they have too much equity there is no debt has a debt has a strong disciplining influence and i think many many startups are indisciplined because they don't have enough uh, debt in there a little bit of debt in the mix uh, should help should uh, uh, discipline themselves so capital structure does matter it can affect a valuation and therefore what we do in a valuation framework is we take a base npv uh, a base valuation and then we add or minus the fx of capital structure so capital structure does matter it can especially for businesses uh, that have um, what we call high bankruptcy costs okay, then capital structure if you carry debt and uh, you have high bankruptcy costs in other words i'm scared that i'm going to buy a car or i'm going to take the service of geo and i'm scared that hey geo is too leverage what happens if they run into a mess like vodafone or whatever uh, would uh, would my service be discontinued would my this thing so therefore i might be scared of uh, capital structure as a consumer uh, and therefore it does have an effect on valuation i think uh, one of the other question which is probably coming from harish uh, one of your favorite alumni uh, is uh, you know he just wants to know your thoughts on behavioral finance uh, I, i mean we know that you have designed one course at xlri on that and if you can just you know uh, share something in terms of role of ergodicity and how in a theoretical framework you can explain herd behavior using some um, of the behavioral yeah. finance concept yeah harish actually uh, there is a there's a prof he was a prof i think he's left academics now but i think he used to teach at nyu a person called ivo welch okay uh, 
who very early on, I think even before I joined, I'm Cody Code, I used to follow him and his work. And he used to do a lot of work on uh, herding. Uh, and uh, though we, though when in a normal English sense, we normally talk, when you talk about herding, herd mentality, we prefix irrational. We say it's irrational. But Evo Welch had this whole thing of, uh, he had this whole um, modeling of rational herding, what he used to call rational herding. It's an information science sort of thing, in the sense that if you imagine a herd of wild buffaloes, let's say, okay, or wild cattle or wild animals running along a plain in, the, uh, in Africa, and they reach a fork, okay, the lead animal reaches the fork first, obviously. And there's one path going to the left, one path going to the right. In that split second, that animal, which is at the uh, head of the pack, has to decide whether to go left or right. It's processing all the info it's got, seeing the thing, and it takes the left. Now, the second animal in the herd has got all the information that the first one had, and it's got an additional bit of info. That additional bit of information is the fact that the first animal took the path to the left. And therefore, the second animal says, hey, let's, let me also go to the left. Now, the third animal has got all the information that the first two had and has got another bit of info. And therefore, he calls that the rational herding. Therefore, very often, uh, though we call it irrational, uh, herding could be very, very rational because it's Bayesian information processing. So one thing, again, I love about behavioral finance is that yeah, the farmers, efficient markets, what Hiren was talking about, the information processing assumes that human beings, we are very good Bayesian updaters of information. But I've done so many fascinating experiments in class, in executive education classes and the MBA class, which shows that we are very slow to update our uh, information. We are sticky with our ideas. We are slow to update. And therefore, in that sense, herding is not really irrational. It could be rational. Thank you. Maybe we can take the next one. Uh, one question uh, from someone called P.K. Goparakrishnan. Uh, wants to know that are these theories still relevant in volatile markets like today? Uh, if you just look at the stock market movement from the lows of March, uh, in the last couple of months, very sharp rebound across the world. It's not clear whether the, it is the rationality which is driving the upward movement or something else. Yeah, we keep talking about we keep talking about uh, the disconnect between Main Street and Wall Street. But uh, in the short run, always the markets have noise and information. In the short run, obviously there'll be departures from rationality, and therefore you won't be able to explain uh, in that sense every single moment of the market. But in the long run, obviously, it cannot be disconnected from reali reality. So you would have these, uh, you would have these. So therefore, again, if you look at behavioral finance, theories in behavioral finance, uh, we have this overreaction hypothesis. The overreaction hypothesis is exactly what I was saying now. Okay, That is, human beings are slow to react. You're prejudiced. We are prejudiced. We always have a confirmatory bias. We are looking for information in life. We are looking for information which agrees with our views. So what happens is that we have formed a view 
the COVID figures might be going up. The world seems to be going in a, in a spin, but we might not update our view fast enough. Okay. But then suddenly, and that is what I mean by the experiments that I used to run in class, I used to simulate. I used to say that here, here's a company which is running to, through trouble. I'll give you bits of information and you tell me whether you are changing your recommendation from sell to buy. Okay. So what would happen or buy to sell? So what would happen is that students, you keep giving information in the same direction, bad news. They don't move from optimism to pessimism. For They might not do it for three, four times. By the time you give the fifth information, suddenly they react and they overreact. And that's what we call, so that's what we call the overreaction hypothesis. There's, there's some amount of slowness in reacting, but once the market reacts, it goes the other way. And therefore arbitrage funds or investors can say that, hey, when there is a reaction, there's going to be an overreaction, whether it is about Vodafone news or whether it's about uh, a national level news. And therefore you could be maybe uh, trade based on that irrationality. Yeah, I mean, I, I always think that there is always very fine line between conviction and the overconfidence, right? And uh, you, you, yeah. you never know when you cross that line. Yeah. And to, to your point, sometimes what I try to do for, uh, when I want to buy something, I go uh -huh. to the most bearish analyst on that stock in the street and just hear out what are the views. Like, you know, because I know all the bullish things about it. I just want to know the other side of the argument. And uh, that sometimes helps in framing the decision better. Uh, another question from uh, one of the participants, Bumish Ji. Uh, he wants to know that how relevant is value investing today? A lot of preference towards growth stocks, I mean, growth stocks and little love for value stocks, which some even being categorized as old economy stocks. And if you have any thoughts on that. Yeah, well, value need not be synonymous with old, but value investing again, I think uh, obviously the idea of the margin of safety, the idea of buying when price is much lesser, lesser than intrinsic value. You can never take away that, um, that thought about uh, going for deep value, but then uh, you might not as uh, Warren Buffett uh, famously said, when there was a big bull run in Wall Street, he said that, look, I'm not going to look that way for the next uh, one year. Okay, I'm going to, uh, so therefore, there might be periods of time when you don't find uh, value stocks because you're looking for deep bargains. You can't find bargains very easily. And therefore, Boomish, in that sense, yeah, uh, it might be difficult to find value stocks when the market is going another way. But that's essentially the whole idea. Okay, that is... You have to be contrarian. And if you're contrarian in certain scenarios, you might have find a dearth of value stocks. And actually, when would you find value stocks? When everyone else is uh, sort of beating it down. And that's when you would find uh, stocks which are uh, beaten down. So therefore, value would uh, always be there, whether it's old economy or new economy. If you flipped it through those filters, you would find, in fact, one of the assignments I gave for my SAPM batch of IIM Udaipur this time was I challenged them to try and pick up two stocks which they thought were value stocks using filters which are publicly available. And I was surprised that out of the uh, 10 uh, groups, 
because I said I'll evaluate your assignment. I can't wait for years. I'll evaluate your assignment after two years. Some of them had really picked up stocks which were beaten down, just using ordinary filters, Petrovsky scores and using return filters, uh, risk filters. They, they, none of them really went and picked up a stock which got beaten down in two months. They picked up stocks which actually went up in a market which went down. So therefore, I think uh, the whole idea does uh, uh, make sense. Thank you. I think uh, another question uh, from Vipin Mahajan. He wants to know that, you know, if this whole US-China thing kind of continues to escalate and if it leads to the fragmentation of the global market, you know, what, what I mean, basically what does the US-China relationship lead to? What kind of market fragmentation globally? Yeah, hi, Vipin. I don't know the, now whether when you say global markets or whether you're referring to the financial markets or the product markets. Okay, I guess uh, it's both that you're referring to. But um, each generation, when we live through these times, we say, hey, this has not happened uh, ever before. But then all of this, in, in uh, if you look at it again in terms of uncertainty, in terms of uh, we've been modeling securities prices formally, mathematically, only for the last maybe 70 years from Markowitz's time. And that's really, really short in human history. And therefore, we will have these um, uh, shocks happening like the world wars. Uh, so therefore, these uh, division that we are currently seeing might not be all that uh, much of a divide uh, seen in relation to what the world has seen in the past and the world might see in the future. But obviously, there will be uh, there'll be that little bit of jostling for space, uh, like any other game. Here are the two big players who, are, who might get hurt. There are smaller guys who are trying to occupy space. And then just like our financial markets come into an equilibrium, uh, the markets come into an equilibrium. The only thing is that uh, in the product markets, unlike financial markets, uh, the reversibility is tougher. And therefore, though we talk about uh, the shift of production from, let's say, uh, China to other countries, that's easier said than done. The frictions are much more than the financial markets where you can unwind a position so much more easier. But unwinding relationships, unwinding connects are, that, are much, much tougher than uh, we sometimes wish uh, them to be. And therefore, I think um, there will be that uncertainty, uh, but then it should settle down. Okay, uh, another question from Nilanjan, Nilanjan Karpa. Uh, he says, Professor Uday, Namudran, in equity investing, everyone is constantly talking about return on equity, but forgetting about cost of equity. And isn't cost of equity the biggest driver of value? And can companies really alter the implied cost of equity? Yep. Now, uh, we know the basic uh, value uh, proposition. We say that a business uh, is creating value when, like you said, when return on equity is greater than, uh, the return that you get from equity is greater than what the investor decides, which is the cost of equity. And uh, cost of equity is important. Okay, But when you decompose the cost of equity, 
when you decompose the cost of equity, you say cost of equity is equal to the risk-free rate of return plus some measure of risk, let's say beta, into the investor's desired rate of return per unit risk. So there are three components. One is the risk-free rate of return. The other is the measure of risk of the business, the beta, let's say. And the third is the market risk premium. How much do we uh, demand per unit of risk? Now, of these three components, two are outside the firm. The firm cannot influence the risk-free rate. The firm cannot influence uh, investors' appetite for risk, which is the market risk premium. So the only thing that the firm can actually influence is the beta, is the beta, okay? And that beta is your, in, in uh, common sense terms, is your uh, sensitivity to the uh, markets, to the uh, economy. And then like, uh, yeah, Nelanjan, so therefore my favorite thing is that decompose the beta even more into the upside beta. How much does your business get a kick up when the world does well? And the downside beta, how much do you get beaten when the world and the economy, the global economy or the domestic economy goes down? And increasingly, I think in the future, downside risk, downside beta will become important, will become important. And therefore, companies should focus on controlling that downside beta. And what is downside risk? It could be reputation risk. It could be governance risk. Look at the connectedness of the world today. A protest in the US against brutality of the cops in the US morphs into a protest in Paris against police brutality. Okay, And if we imagine in a world which becomes kinder and kinder, we are evolving, as we become better and better, we move from slavery, we move from not being concerned about the environment to be concerned. So if you have, God forbid, if you have your, your company that you have invested in, which has not been very good in governance, which has not been good in gender sensitivity. And if they have a problem in the US with uh, some employee, it can morph into a problem all over the world. Your consumers, young uh, people, the Greta Thunberg, Thunbergs might, Thunbergs might desert you, suppliers might desert you. And therefore, I think increasingly that uh, that risk, a reputation risk, uh, your governance risk, that also will become important. But then uh, two or three factors on the cost of equity uh, side, the firm cannot really control. Thank you. I think as they say nowadays that ESG investing is no longer a bull market luxury, but it's also a bear market necessity. Yeah, like uh, the BlackRock CEO, Fink, and others have said, even I think the Morningstar indices, ESG indices, didn't show too much of a return, but showed much less volatility. And therefore, it's all about uh, risk. It's all about being, being prepared for the worst possibility. Well, I guess we are coming coming up an hour. So I'll probably have the last question for you, sir. And uh, since this is an IMK alumni channel, I cannot let you go without asking what is your favorite memory of IM Kozikod. And uh, <laughs> if you want to share that with thank us. You, thank you for putting this up. And normally, uh, almost every <laughs> memory is good every memory is good uh the rains the clouds i saw that anthem the IK anthem which has come out right now used to love our office rooms sumas and mine office rooms used to love the smallness of the institute the small number of students the small number of 
faculty, the collegiality, the huge uh, amount of collegiality we had uh, from the administration side. I used to love the collective decision-making that we had, the closeness to students of those batches, uh, because we were, we were living through everything together. I remember that one day when uh, we came out, there was a storm. We could see the clouds rolling in from 20 kilometers away. From almost the sea, we could see the uh, cl cl clouds rolling in. All of us, faculty, students, came out to watch it. And then suddenly, all the tiles lifted. The tiles just flew up into the air and came crashing down because apparently the uh, Delhi architect or the Delhi builders didn't know that it had to be put in place. And therefore, the tiles just lifted. So everything, everything was uh, happy. It was fun. Uh, we went back last year, Suma and me, for some of the work. Loved being there. Thank you so much, Professor. I'm sure we could go on for hours and hours on this. And uh, there are many more questions. My apologies for some of those which we could not take during uh, during today's session because of the paucity of time. But uh, I just wanted to thank you again on behalf of the entire I am Kelly Benai, and uh, thank you all for joining with, joining today's session. And we can close here now. Thank you, sir. Thank you so much. Thank you, Irene. Thank. You. Hey guys, listen to the I am Kori Code Anthem Badalome class on YouTube, Spotify, Apple Music, Hangama and many more streaming platforms.